Hi there, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Do you have a homestead, farm, or just dream of a rural life? This is a show to help you and your kids grow your own food and grow as a person. I'm your host, Cody Hanner. I'm a homesteader, homeschool mama six, and small town enthusiast. I was raised by an old school rancher and blessed by the grace of God to have been exposed to so much of what rural life has to offer. Join me every week to talk about homesteading, homeschooling, and growth with a homestead education. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Today, I have Katie Warwick. She is originally from Vermont, now lives in Colorado, and is a suburban homesteader, learning how to do everything from scratch until she can make it onto her own land. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you and um, teach you about what I do. I love it. So do you want to tell us a little more about yourself? Sure. So I moved to Colorado about seven years ago and um, mostly came here to do my master's in um, animal shelter management. And so I have a background of veterinary medicine and um, my degree was in behavioral neuroscience. So I really come from a science background and I always have been taught to question everything. And so, I, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt real quick. So is Loveland in Denver? No, it's about an hour north of Denver. So we're um, about 25 minutes away from CSU. Oh, okay, so were you wanting to like study with Temple Grandin? Yeah, that, I've actually met her before, but she is yeah. really really cool and she is awesome great work for CSU I've been yeah I I was an animal science major so immediately I'm like ooh. (laughs) so sorry go ahead we'll circle back to that (laughs) yeah so um at CSU I studied animal shelter management but I really found my passion um for marketing and that's kind of what I do as my full-time job but the animal aspect was still there all the time, you know? So I've worked for veterinary um, companies, veterinary hospitals, and I do social media for a couple other different companies. What really broadened my view and got me started in homesteading was um, during COVID, um, we lived with a 90 year old man And in order to make sure that he was safe and didn't get sick, we quarantined with him, gardened with him, went fishing with him, basically um, learned the in and outs of what it's like to be a homesteader, because that's kind of how he's lived his life, his whole life. And he's been a chicken farmer. He's he's done it all. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, Those are the best. You get to learn. You aren't learning from a book. You're learning while doing from somebody who's done it, like, and a lot of times out of necessity, not out of choice. Yes. And um, definitely learned a lot of frugal tips from him because um, he was still working a full-time job, like in the basement as a 90 year old man. Oh, wow. Well, good for him. That would have been my dad if he made it that long. So he was, you know, out of middle Tennessee, grew up ranching, hitchhiked to California and started ranching and worked until like within a week of passing away. Like, and he was a hunting guide. So, I mean, he was out working. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to love people with that type of just drive. Oh yeah. And 
I'll probably be like him too. You know, I'm never going to rest or be bored. I will not ever um, kind of be the person that's going to sit on the couch and watch TV for an hour. That's just not. We won't tell my husband that I plan on working that long. (laughs) (laughs) When I met him, he was already like technically retired because he was a disabled vet from um, Iraq. He got blown up three times. So he's like, I did my work. I'm just going to live my life. And I'm like, my life includes entrepreneurship. So get with it. (laughs) Yeah, I totally feel the same. We have the same partnership with um, my partner. He's very much a sit back and relax and watch me do the projects until I kind of mess up. And then he steps in to help. (laughs) My husband will do it. I just have to remind him for six months. Yeah, that's how it goes. (laughs) Like we were in the garden last night and I was like, you know, I just realized that we are less than a month out from when I first told you it's time to get the heifer bread and she is still not bread. Oh gosh. Like, see, you just have to remind me for a year and eventually I'll get it done. And I'm like, it doesn't work like that in farming. No, it really doesn't. And um, we both have had to change, you know, our timeline of things because of the housing market, the timeline of what we want to do and where we want to be in life because we're still pretty young. Um, I'm only 29 and he's about 35. And it's, it's really difficult when you're a young person not to have access to land or money. If you didn't grow up with someone giving you money and like coming from money, it's really been difficult, especially Mm -hmm. in Colorado. I don't know if you've been here, but it's extremely expensive. I used to live in Fountain. Yeah. There you go. So, um, yeah, it it is impossible to buy land. I did real estate for a while. You know, we were able to buy ours because my husband's a disabled vet. So we had our VA loan, but it is really challenging. Um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, I always tell people in this day and age, like you can't, you can't just have one job or you can't settle for the regular job. If you want to have that, I guess, I guess there's just a new American dream. Like you grow your own food and you work online to be able to afford things. <laughs> That's exactly what I do. So I, have, <laughs> I tell people I have like four jobs, basically. We live absolutely in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, I have two routers and sometimes this computer will connect to the other one and it doesn't have as strong as a connection. So yeah, it's definitely difficult here. I mean, the, the pros of living in a city are that you know, Wi-Fi is usually stable for my job. And um, I'm close to a lot of stores like tractor supply and things like that. But, you know, I think we really would like to be more rural someday. You know what? I love it. I've always lived rurally, but sometimes even in the rural locations I live, there was still a Walmart, you know, like a Walmart 15 minutes down the road, you know? Right. And where we're at now, we are 40 minutes from the closest grocery store and an hour and a half from like, you know, our, we don't have a tractor supply, but like a large feed store, you know, the Walmart, which, you know, as homesteaders, we definitely respect that maybe we don't want Walmart to be our first choice, but when you live in the middle of nowhere, and sometimes that's the only place you can get things, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I definitely understand that because I've I've done a bunch of internships and I lived in rural Pennsylvania for four months and that was the only store within like two hours of me. Yeah. A huge change. And it's not even the option of like buying local or from the small person. There's just nowhere else to get it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Unless, you know, you want to ship it in from 
Amazon because no one else will ship to us. Either. Yes, so. that's a great option too. But it's it really is, yeah. all about moderation, you know, balancing what can you get from local people? What can you grow organically? And I think that's really helped me in my journey, not mm-hmm. so hard on myself and be like, oh, I, I can't make this. Like, oh, I'm so mad that I, I'm not able to have these ingredients or I have to go to Walmart and get this mm-hmm. and not be ashamed of that. Yeah, we definitely, we balance that too. And that's what I always say, just with homesteading in general, it's a sliding scale and where, and it's a state of mind. So wherever your needle is on that scale, just embrace that and keep pushing it forward. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I came across you because you posted a reel about tanning. And so, you know, a little bit of a selfish, uh, learning opportunity for me. My mom was a um, taxidermist and we prepared hides for tanning all the time when I was a kid, but then we'd send them out to be chemically tanned. And I always just hated that process. Cause I'm like, what if you want to tan at home? And we weren't allowed to have the chemicals. Right. And so when I saw what you were doing, I was super intrigued because as a hunting homesteading family, I think that that's like a pursuit that one day we may want to embrace. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting hobby and skill. I think it kind of falls under the taxidermy kind of umbrella. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really stumbled upon it because um, I had farmer friends that were, you know, going to butcher their animals. And I asked them, hey, like, what do you do with their carcasses? Like, what do you do with all the other parts? And they had an answer for most of them, but they really never explained or went over what they did with their skins or mm-hmm. in the skull. So that's when I started to dig a little deeper and kind of see like what I could do on our small property or in the city, something that I could like help out with because I can't have my own livestock. I love that. Yeah. That's, you know, like I said, that's really exciting to me. You know, we we're hog farmers, so I'm definitely not keeping those hides. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a lot of times our butcher comes and then we do our own butchering, but when we're selling to customers, we have to use our butcher. And <clears throat> when he comes, that goes to rendering, which the rendering plant then uses all of those products for soaps and other things like that that they and sometimes the hides actually not hog hides but you know if it's a um cow hide that'll go to the rendering plant takes it and actually you know uses it for leathers and stuff but um when we do it ourselves no we don't always have an option for that and a lot of times it goes to our dogs or composting um but yeah now that we're getting where we're butchering more cows and then we actually have a really bad uh, wolf population where we're at. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so there's, you can get like 10 wolf tags a year, like for hunting. And I mean, to the point where, um, the fish and game will actually pay you for every tail you bring them. That's crazy. Yeah. So I'm like, well, then we have these hides, what should we do with them? And I don't want to send them off to, um, a tanning place. Right. I'd like to be able to, you know, like either keep them or sell them off of, from our farm store. And so, yeah, that's, do you want to tell us a little bit about that process and how you're able to do that at home? Yeah, sure. 
So um, as you probably know, um, a lot of the tanning places that you would send it off to use a ton of chemicals um, that are not great for the skin, um, but also like really damaging to the environment. And mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of really into the environment, which is why I started doing this because I realized that there was a lot of butchers throwing away these skins mm -hmm. and they put them in plastic bags and then they're going to a landfill where they're surrounded by plastic and styrofoam. And not least if they're going to throw them away, at least throw them away, like not in a plastic bag, like they would just yeah. go back into our soils. But sometimes it's not really their choice because of the government and the way that the USDA has demanded like we dispose of things in order for public safety and health but if you're doing it on a small scale on your own farm your own property and you mm -hmm. take the proper precautions there's really nothing to be scared of um because you compost in your um your pig hides and everything like and then the dogs will eat the rest mm -hmm. but what I started doing after I would pick up um I started with sheep hides because I'm a very small person. Um, I cannot carry <laughs> a cowhide. <laughs> tried that and greatly failed. It like fell on top of me and I smelled like dead cow for like a week. Oh no. I would panic like I was suffocating or something. So <laughs> yeah, it was quite traumatic. And someday when I have the proper setup on a bigger spot, um, I will definitely attempt it again. Well, cowhides can be really gorgeous. So yes. Yeah. And um that is really kind of the end product people are so impressed and so proud by and so willing to use it in different ways. Um, I personally don't use it for fashion, but a lot of people are really into sustainable clothing too. And yeah, well, I mean, the, there's a difference when people use it for clothing, there's a difference between fashion and not wanting to. Yeah, no, there's a, I get 100%. it. <laughs> yeah. And or like, I mean, real leather shoes working on the farm is a totally different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really awesome because, um, that's how I kind of found the sheep hide mm -hmm. business and the, I picked up, I think it was, I really overcommitted at first. I think I picked <laughs> up 10 sheep hides from a small local farmer. Oh yeah, that would. <laughs> her butcher day. And I went the same day to pick up, um, the fresh raw hides. Cause that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, Getting them fresh means that there's no bacteria able to leak into the hide and everything, ruining it from being preserved. So I, at first I froze them in my freeze freezer until I was able to get to them because I was really busy working a lot of hours. And now I salt them. So you can actually cure them with salt just to save them the same way in a closed area because moths and other bugs can get to it. So I also close them in an area so they aren't ruined that way. So that's kind of the first step is getting your hide mm -hmm. and preserving it until you're able to go through the tanning process or the fleshing process. And the next step is fleshing. It is a pretty gross term and I think it does get some you definitely have to get used to working with um, animals, blood, guts. I come a vet from a veterinary background, so that's not a problem for me. But for some people, I think you really will have to ease yourself into that. Because um, sometimes it isn't pleasant. Sometimes um, the hides will come with their feet still on them or their tails still on them. And I do remove those things um, to just focus on the hide and tanning that because it's a lot of work just by itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
we actually we did the fleshing on it reminded me of like uh I was a kid when my mom stopped doing taxidermy so the best way I have to describe it is it reminded me of an ironing board yeah it was like at an angle and rounded it was made out of wood and then we had this long knife that looked like those saws that you saw back and forth and we'd actually just roll it down the hide like I mean I don't you know this is a podcast so people won't be able to see my little action (laughs) that I'm doing right now but we would just sit there in a chair and like use that knife and we'd move the hide up and then scrape it again and move it up again. And yeah. Using gravity on your side is like really smart. <laughs> right. so a lot of people do um, like flesh their hides that way. Mm-hmm. I personally don't because I don't have a fleshing beam. What you're referring to. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I don't use a, um, that big of a fleshing tool because again it's just too big for me to use um I just don't find that I am very good at it mm-hmm. <laughs> so I use like a just a sawhorse that you would use for cutting wood on okay um like a flat surface and an ulu knife so an ulu knife is kind of like a it's hard to describe it's like a half circle kind of like a moon knife okay. handle at the end I've seen those, yeah. Yeah, so we had gotten a really nice knife made of bone from Alaska. Mm. And that was the first knife that I received um, from a friend. She has, um, her in-laws live there. And how special. Yeah, it was very special and really cool that I could actually put it to use in such a um, old kind of, hobby and way that people used to process animals and use this knife made of bones as well. Um, but the fleshing, I kind of do it on a straight edge and um, the sheep aren't really that hard to do. It takes me about 30 minutes to do each sheep hide, um, just going once over, which isn't bad. That's it, like me doing it two years now. It used to take mm-hmm. me like two hours. <laughs> That still isn't terrible. I mean, they're not a small, it's not like you're doing a rabbit hide or something. So the rabbit would probably take like 10 minutes, but, um, yeah. And then once they're flushed, you can start doing the actual preserving method. I have done two different methods. There's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, so people at home can research and figure out what's best for them. But have you done like a YouTube or something on? Yes. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, I so guess I'll have, have to go check that out. <laughs> I would just my the amount of time I have in my life allows for reels, and then I pick the ones I want to like research more. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. It's it takes a while to learn how to do this and like execute the the whole process because there's like 14 steps total, and um, my YouTube channel really is only up there so that people can learn how to do um, egg tanning and alum tanning. That's the two different methods that I use. So you said egg? Yeah. You use an egg and olive oil and um, kind of mix it together to preserve the hide. And what was the other kind? The other kind is called um, thawing, which uses alum. You've probably heard of that in like... What is that? Alum. A-L-U-M. Uh, people use it in pickles, I think, to keep it mm-hmm. crunchy. Um, but I buy it in bulk to do the tanning with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I buy it in a thing about this big. 
for the people who can't see about an inch tall, like my little, like my McCormick spices or something. Yes, definitely. Um, you can get bulk alum on Amazon or something like that, really. Okay. And super cheap. And so depending on which method you want to go towards, um, a more natural method would be the egg tanning, um, which is what a lot of people are interested in because you usually have oil and eggs at home. Um, you mm-hmm. don't need anything extra. So um, once the kind of um, hide is tanned or flushed, I actually use tawing as a method because I think it turns out a little easier to break once you're stretching and breaking your hide. Um, it takes a lot of strength, a lot of power, and a lot of um, just skill, honestly, to make sure that the fibers are all broken in all the spots. You'll learn when you work on a hide that the neck area and the back where the spine lies is an extremely tough part to stretch out. And um, I felt like I, when I was tying the hide, it was much easier for me to do it. So do you have something that you're using to stretch or are you just doing it by hand? Yeah, I'm just doing it by hand on the corner of my sawhorse. So you can use like a corner of a piece of wood or your hands, or if you have a partner, you can stretch it um, back and forth between you two. That's a really great interactive um, piece to it to include other people. And um, so the hides basically go in. Hey, date night. You want to go stretch a hide? (laughs) Yeah, I've got my partner a little bit into it, but he's still not used to the whole like dead animal aspect. So, um, you know, it does gross out a lot of different people. That's okay. My husband is, doesn't, can't figure out a lot of aspects of me. So I just roll with it. <laughs> yeah. So the hides go in with salt and alum and they soak for about seven days. And um, that basically um, kind of locks in the hair. So I do hair on hides because I think the hair is really important and beautiful and it's great to preserve it. Also wool is very warm and you can use the wool once it's, you know, finished with the hide for a lot of different things. Whereas Mm -hmm. you could do like buckskin with um, deer skin. That's really great too. A lot of people make rope and string out of that and yeah drums like there's so many different options of where you can go with this I mean we've only had synthetic fabrics for like what the last hundred years right yeah so you know people used to have to make their own fabrics and um you know instruments I think are really cool when it comes to that um because they still do that there there's no synthetic way around it I love it um and then once the hide is been soaking in alum, I kind of wring it out, wash it. You really want to get the smell out here. You don't want any lingering, nasty, uh, like yellow coloring or anything in a white, like wool hide, because that's really hard to clean after you get mm-hmm. to. Clean it. So I clean it before the alum, but also after the alum soak and uh, just with regular um, natural detergent or Dawn soap, really anything that you have on hand works. Okay. There's a lot of different, uh, like wool cleaners that people could use. I've never used them, but that's highly recommended as well. You just okay. want to be careful how it reacts with the skin part. 
and not the wool, just maybe focus hmm. just putting it on the wool part. Not like the on the fluffy, just on the outside to brighten it up or something. Yeah. Exactly. And then um, I do soak it in a little bit of baking soda after just to neutralize the hide because it has been sitting in alum for a bit. Okay. And then it's really just finishing the hide. So as the hide is drying, you want to put oil on the hide to make it really soft and supple. I use needs foot oil. Needs foot? Yep. Okay. It's at Tractor Supply. It's very common for um, equine riders. Um, you know, horse people know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. And, um, anyone who's worked with leather, really, um, it's a very, really unscented natural oil and it's it does beautiful with the hives that I work with so you're going to want to put that on when it's wet and then eventually it's going to dry and stretch out and I stretch and dry it out in my garage so I'm not freaking out any of my neighbors um over the span of like they can just get on board <laughs> they can they probably would because they're all really chill older people but nice. I actually had someone tell me this weekend that their neighbor was a taxidermist when they were a kid and they like looked over the fence one time and he had like 10 bison heads that he was trying to let like the beetles eat off so that he just have the skulls and she's like the whole neighborhood stunk and I was like yeah I think that's pushing it a little bit like yeah, although funny. as a kid I was always boiling skulls on the kitchen stove so you know <laughs> yeah that's, de that's definitely something I never did as a kid or was not exposed to I kind of sought out my own journey my sleepovers at my house were weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I can I probably would have enjoyed that as a kid but I think when you come from such a like a normal family that's not really into that stuff who has never homesteaded before. It just, it's such a different world and it really opens up your eyes to what you can do by mm -hmm. yourself at home. Yeah, but, it really yeah. does. I mean, even growing up that way, mm -hmm. when we started our homestead journey, I found that we were doing, we were doing the basics naturally or from scratch or, you know, cause we hunted, we always had a garden, that type of stuff, but my eyes were really open to so much more we could be doing. Yes. Yeah. Or should be doing. Let's use should, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> Definitely. But just out of respect for any mm -hmm. neighbors, I do everything in my garage and then wash and clean it down after. So no, nothing's like contaminated or whatever. But um, so once the hide is drying um, with the oil mm -hmm. on it and it, you start noticing a color change. So the white hide will go from white to yellow if it's like a white sheep. And that means it's time to stretch it and you want the yellow to turn into white. So that means you're kind of turning it back into its white color that it originally was and the fibers are now broken and kind of ready for you to work. So when you stretch, the color changes back. Okay. Yep. And then um, once it's fully dry, there's going to be some like weird fibers sticking up or pieces of fat that you maybe missed the first time around. That's okay. Um, I use my Ulu knife again and just do what's called dry scraping. And you're basically just taking the first layer off to expose this amazing soft leather. Nice. So how long does it take to dry? About five to seven days in the garage. Um, I'd say more for a humid environment 
we're really dry here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes three days in the summer, um, but the oil on top of the water makes it dry way slower, which gives mm -hmm. you time to stretch it. So if it dries too fast, you're kind of not in a good place to break things because <laughs> it's going to be like rawhide, like what you feed to your dogs. And that's not what you want. To yeah, no. <laughs> um, do you have to use like some extra ventilation in your garage or? Nope. We have a door that I can open if I need to. Um, and then there's a door in the back. So if I open both, there's plenty of ventilation. Okay. And so you just, are you like stretching every day or are you just waiting to see if that color changes? Yeah. So I check it in the morning and at night, um, before and after work, kind of see where my hides are at and see what needs to be worked. It, the stretching does need to happen, um, immediately and you don't want to let that go. Sometimes I can be lazy. <laughs> it just turns into a kind of a mess and you definitely Life. learn. Can you re-moisturize it or are you just done? Okay. You do have to re-moisturize with water and, um, the problem with that is that you might have to apply more oil and then restretch the whole entire thing afterwards. So you can do small parts, but I found that once you get a little part wet, it all kind of gets wet and then you have to start over. So that really does suck. Oh yeah, no, I get it. We're, I mean, there's just different parts of this all the time. Like it's raspberry season and we are home for literally 36 hours before we have to leave for our next convention. Oh, wow. And so I was out there, you know, nine o'clock last night picking raspberries. And as we speak, my husband is steam juicing them and throwing them in the canner as soon as they come out. Cause he's like, should I steam juice tonight and cool them down? And I'm like, no, then you have to reheat it when you can like, just take it straight out of the steam juicer to the canner and we can have canned juice before we go. And our poor daughter, she's like, you're going to try to can on top of everything else. <laughs> she's 14 so she's like I just see more work for me <laughs> yeah, that is one thing I do need is a steam juicer that would be so cool I'm really jealous it, that amazing. <laughs> we're actually on our second one because last year I was trying to write a book and um steam trying to steam juice a crate of peaches I bought and there's too much sugar in peaches and I basically like burned the whole thing oh wow good to know yeah I was I was like, I swear I was checking it. My husband's like, you're full of it. You were not checking it. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, well, I checked it <laughs> when it was burned. Yeah. And those mistakes are going to happen in every hobby, every skill. And I've had to really tell myself, you know, you're not going to be good at everything right away. That's my, nope. like, my number one problem is that I expect to be good at everything when I start it. <laughs> Oh, I'm the type that I don't even want to try it unless I know I'm going to be good at it. Yes, I totally understand that. But so, but the steam juicer has been like the lifesaver for us because what I would do before is, you know, I would like boil it and let it like, you know, you have to let it sit like simmering for hours. Then you have to let it drain for hours. And then I'd let it drain in the fridge overnight and then I'd forget about it. And then I would... I couldn't even like freeze it or something at that point. It would be like molding. Yeah. And so with the steam juicer, like I said, you can literally as you can have your hot water bath going and literally as it's like, you have a little like nozzle. And as soon as you fill the jar, you just finger tight those lids and pop them right in. That's so amazing. And I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, during canning season, we have our canning set up just on the stove all the time. And so with something like that, 
it doesn't matter if I have one jar done or if I have 20 jars done, I can just do it right then and there. So what a great process. Yeah. You definitely learn how to streamline your hobbies and, um, you do. And this isn't, you know, homesteading. I always say like, don't try to do everything at once. Like pick a few things, you know, one to a few, like I usually say like one in the kitchen, one on the farm, you know, and master those until they no longer feel like work. They just feel like a part of life. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Definitely had to cut out a few things that did not go my way, like sourdough making. That's just never going to be in the books for me. You know, um, I do it every winter. I don't even try to attempt it over the summer. I know my life. I just let my sourdough die and I start a new one in the fall, which I should figure out how to extend that because I love a really sour sourdough. And when you're, when you have like a baby sourdough every summer or every winter, it just doesn't have that same flavor, but yeah, like, you know, you get up and you make your coffee every morning. Why not just add an, you know, one more step to that while the coffee's brewing, do your sourdough or like we do our bread in the bread machine first. Cause I was like, I don't have time to stand here and need dough. <laughs> so I do the bread in the bread machine for the dough setting. And then I let it do the second rise, like in bread pans. And then I bake it. Cause I don't like the way it comes out from the bread machine baked. Yes, I agree. And so I do it that way. Like while the coffee is going in the morning, I, you know, pop everything into the bread machine and go about my day. And when it's done, then I just have to plop it into bread pans and we have bread by lunchtime and it's just part of our day. It's no longer, I'm not having to stand there and take two hours to make bread. Right. Yeah. It's maybe an extra 10 minutes out of my life total. And a lot of times we'll make bread bags in advance in like, Ziploc gallon bags. And then my daughter just has to dump all the dry ingredients in and add the wet ingredients. And then it's already good to go. She like rolls the bags up and saves them and we use them again um, when we run out of like our 10 bags or whatever we did. That's amazing. Yeah. It works really nice. Like like one loaf of bread per two weeks because just the two of us. Oh yeah. There's eight of us. So we do. We do two to four loaves of bread a day sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, my three and five-year-old think that peanut butter and honey sandwiches are a food group. So yeah. yeah. In fact, sometimes I'll just buy like the cheap bread because my three-year-old thinks that making a seven layer honey sandwich and then microwaving it is like spot on. <laughs> That's adorable. But you know what? He's feeding himself and to learn, you know, really important to give them, you know, the independent skills to do what they want and experiment and they mm-hmm. learn by doing not by watching. All the time, so. He bonds with his dog that way. Cause he'll like sit there like one piece for me, one piece for you, you know, <laughs> that's really cute. Yeah. And then that dog follows him everywhere and I never have to worry about him. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So you ended up going, you kind of uh, talked on this a little bit at the beginning about how you didn't want to see anything going to waste. You've kind of gone on a no waste journey. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? We still have a little bit of time and I'd love to hear more of your techniques. Sure. So um, I'm from Vermont and we were really into environment and recycling and like we would collect cans and bottles for, you know, making money in school for fundraising. And um, when I got to Colorado, it's pretty similar, but they were still a little bit behind and, you know, 
not using plastic bags at grocery stores and stuff like that. It took a couple of years for them to catch up. Um, composting is now like a requirement in my mom's town in Vermont. It's still not a thing here. Huh. Um, I grew up in California, so they're pretty conscious there. Yes. I was surprised when we moved to Idaho and you can't even get recycling service here. That's crazy to me. Like yeah. it blows my mind how like there's parts of the United States that are 10, like a decade behind other states in the environmental movement. Although at the same time, most of the people I know in Idaho are going to their homesteaders. And so they're going to use other things in their life in a totally different way, you know? So it's, you know, they aren't buying as many plastic containers because they're making things at home in glass jars, you know? So I see a lot more of that than I ever saw in California. Like there was more of a need to recycle in that way than there is where we're at in North Idaho. Exactly. And that's kind of what I found here too. Like, um, so because there wasn't those services here, I started, you know, composting. I started making candy out of watermelon rinds. That video went crazy. I had no idea 2 million people would be watching that. And um, the hide thing, you know, I don't want to see those go to waste. Why not when I can use them for something or sell them to make money to feed our chickens or feed our ducks, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's all kind of a circle of life and finding a purpose for everything. And I didn't really plan to go down the like no waste path, but I guess I really have in a way because of homesteading and I want to use everything. And my grandma always taught me never waste a thing, like Mm -hmm. purpose for everything. And you don't have to be a hoarder to have a purpose for everything. You just Mm-mm. have to find the time and um, learn the skills to be able to use everything. And you can do it on your own time. It's not like. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many different ways of doing things with the modern conveniences that we have now. Right. So, you know, I'm not making broth every single day but I'm keeping all of my vegetable tops and throwing them in the freezer. And then when I make broth, I have, I can just dump a whole bag of, you know, onion skins and carrot tops and that type of stuff into my broth. And it's all right there for me. In the meantime, I wasn't wasting anything. Yeah, absolutely. Like all the vegetable scraps and the bones from cooking a chicken or a duck, Mm -hmm. um, all go to making broth and, or to the chickens and ducks back to them. Like feeding the eggs back to the chickens is also another thing. Like egg has gone to waste or found like you know in the corner and it's gone rotten those chickens are fine eating them again exactly (laughs) um the favorite place for my ducks to hang out is the compost pile they absolutely love it there's the red wiggler worms in there Mm -hmm. um, and the chickens will turn my compost for me and by digging and moving it around so everything really all works together I actually, I follow a gal who did almost like a compost bin in the corner of her chicken coop mm-hmm. so that the chickens they'd get in there and they'd eat it and they'd turn it and they'd poop on it. And then in the spring, you'd have compost ready to go. Yes, absolutely. And I was like, I really want to try that, but like, I just haven't yet, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's really awesome. I have my compost pile in my duck coop area, mm-hmm. my duck run. 
And um, in the winter, um, the chickens get the duck area because it's more of an insulated coop and they don't do well in the winter like the ducks do. Mm. So the chickens will get the compost pile from the fall to the spring. So they're basically making the compost when I really need them to be working. And then in the summer when they can chill and be cooler on the other side, um, the ducks are, you know, aerating and getting the bugs. So they both kind of work really well together. I love that. That's such a smart way of rotating them. I have yet to find a good way to keep ducks on our property. We've tried. Um, I would highly recommend Muscovy ducks. I've had the same issue with regular ducks like Swedish Peking uh-huh. and Khaki Campbell's. I really did not enjoy them. Um, first of all, they're really loud and we live in a city. So I didn't want anyone complaining because once someone complains, I have to get rid of all of my animals. Um, that's the rule here. You can have whatever you want, but if, unless someone complains, um, they're all gone. So wow. Looked into that's why you take a dozen eggs to all your neighbors like once yeah. a week. <laughs> so. I, I do that, yeah. Um, but the Muscovy ducks are known as like a quackless duck, and they do quack, you know, when they're spooked or something. But in general, they just coo and they hiss if they're boys. Um, mm. and they're amazing, amazing animals. They have way better personalities than the regular ducks, they're extremely intelligent. They are great foragers. They have almost decimated my grasshopper population, which was ruining my entire garden. I'm sure, yeah. Because they're all overrun here. It's just disgusting. Um, they're not messy. They don't need a lot of water. They maybe use their pond, like in the kiddie pool, like once or twice a week to take a bath. But really, they are, okay. They're amazing. That was another problem we had is they stunk so bad from their pond. Yeah, I use sand as... Um, their bedding um, in their area and that keeps the smell down with lime the lime powder I just spray mm-hmm. it there and it keeps the smell down and it really keeps the flies away too because the flies can be attracted to their poop but then you know spot cleaning every now and then the um, duck poops kind of turn out like cow patties after they're dried so you just kind of remove them off the sand oh, like okay. mm-hmm. kind of like just cleaning a cat litter box Flies are a big issue here. We're hog farmers and we live next door to a maggot farm. Ooh. (laughs) So they actually, they raise maggots here and they're used for pollination in greenhouses down in California so that they aren't having to use bees because then the bees die in the greenhouses. So they use the flies and they buy them as pupae. And then when they, um, they just put the pupae in the greenhouse, they are shipped cold And once they warm up in the greenhouse, they turn into flies, they fly around and pollinate everything. And then when they die, they can either just be vacuumed up or composted or whatever they choose to do. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a really like awesome process, but you know, sometimes they have breaches in security, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, like there's no security happening there. (laughs) My son used to work there and he's like, yeah, sometimes they would you know, they'd get too hot or there'd be a pin, you know, a pin left open in the fly room or something like that. And then they come out and like, so we definitely have more of a fly problem than probably the average like pig farm and stuff. Yeah. The ducks um, are really great for that because they did a study with Muscovy ducks and they saw that I think it was 40% of the fly population went down um, having them on a dairy farm because they walked Mm -hmm. around and they ate the 
um, the pupae, the young mm -hmm. bugs, the larvae, and they weren't able to grow into a fly. So they're really for any bug control, really. We're working on um, our chickens in a chicken tractor following the cows. We just, the cows have been at the neighbors for the last four months getting bread. And now that they're home, that's our next project because we're revamping how we do our whole farm. And that's Amazing. one of our projects. Yeah, we, it's a like, I don't know, it's kind of a long story, but my husband was diagnosed with liver disease six years ago. And we, that's when we started our like really strong homestead journey to try to help his health. He's since in the last six months had a biopsy and he has a fully healed liver. Wow. So, you know, praise, but, um, with that, he went from like begrudgingly, like doing all my farm chores because I made him <laughs> to now he's like, I really love our farm and I want to see what we can do with it next. So we've always sold pork and stuff off our property. So now we're going to have a full farm store in the spring. That's amazing. Yeah. And we're adding, so we've always, we, the dairy cows have been dry for the last year. We needed a break while I launched my new business. Um, but they're going to be calving again in the fall and we always have our pork. And then I have my seasonal products that we've always sold, but we have to drive them to town. So now we are locking everything in this year to make sure that we have the right breeding schedule and those types of things to always have our main products. And then the seasonal ones, of course, will be seasonal, but we live right on the Canadian border, Oh, okay. like right on it, like a thousand feet from border patrol and raw milk is illegal in Canada. But people can come over the border and bring home up to $20 worth of dairy products a day per person. Oh, wow. So, yeah, anybody that's, you know, traveling down to our town for shopping or whatever they're doing, they can stop at our store, buy those products, and take them across the border. That's a really good option. Yeah. Especially when we are, we're 40 minutes from town this way and I think 20 minutes from the closest town in Canada. Amazing. And is raw milk illegal in your state? Mm -mm. Okay. It is yeah, illegal yeah. in our state. Oh, okay. Is it fully illegal or is it herd share or? Um, I've seen more just herd shares. I'm extremely lactose intolerant. So I really haven't discovered that part of myself in the eating journey yet. Is it lactose or is it the um, casein protein? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm just, I'm really scared. So... <laughs> Check, find out with an allergist or buy one of those allergy kits or something, because if it's the casein allergy, the protein rather than the lactose, which is the sugar, you can buy A2, A2 milk. Okay. I'm writing this and down. yeah, and look into it a little bit. It's really unique. So A2, A2 is a genetic combination of raw milk of milk and all cows used to be A2, A2. And in fact, you'll still find that a lot in like beef cows, like Angus cows. A lot of them are A2, A2 but you're not milking your Angus. Some people are, but you know, they just don't provide the quantities because they haven't been bred that way. So there was a genetic mutation at some point that went along with the higher milk yields. And so that is why most commercial milks, people have some sort of intolerance to because they are either A1, A1 or A1, A2. So now that they've discovered this and they're really starting to focus on it, a lot of small scale farmers, raw milk producers, those types of things are purposely breeding and selling this A2A2 milk casein that 
if you are allergic to or have an intolerance to that protein rather than the sugar, you can drink this. That would be amazing because I really do miss cheese and heavy cream and oh, <laughs> right. So look into those because if that's the case, you can, you know, get a herd share or even look into raw milk or just, you know, there might even be a co-op that sells A2A2 or something in your area that's a pasteurized A2A2. There's also a milk there out of Iowa. It's called Kahlua Supernatural or something. I had them on the podcast, Um, but they have a milk that is uh, low temperature pasteurized, just enough to make it legal, but not enough to kill all the good enzymes in milk. So that's cool. Yeah, definitely something to look into. Yeah, you learn something every day. Right? Well, that actually is a wonderful opportunity for me to ask my favorite question to all of my guests. And that is, what does keep growing mean to you? Um, I think it just means to keep learning, keep learning skills that better my life, my health, and the people around me's health and life. Um, I mean, if we're all benefiting from my growth and I can teach others and build a community around this, then I mean, that's, that's my purpose in life. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. Um, I don't do TikTok, but I do have a website, a little following you, (laughs) a little (laughs) small store, um, the Western wonderwoman.com, or, um, you can always do a local pickup in Loveland. Well, I have enjoyed our talk so much and I will put all your links in the show notes and, um, can't see to, can't wait to see what journey you're going to go on next. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today at the Homestead Education. And I hope that I have given you something to think about this week. To help others find me, please comment and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow me on Facebook at The Homestead Education and Instagram at homestead underscore education. Do you have questions that you would like answered or just want to say hi? Please email me at hello at thehomesteadeducation.com. Until next time, keep growing!